0: Well, like I said, my name is Jamie Ingram. It's my privilege to get to be with you today. It's my privilege to get to open God's Word with you today. And man, I just love those stories, don't you? Isn't it amazing to hear from missionaries about what God's doing all over the world? You know, I, I, I feel in a, in a way like it's, it's a privilege for me because I get to hear these stories all the time. I get to be in the staff morning prayer times when Pastor Sean talks about the go nights and people coming to faith in Christ, or when Manny talks about the things that God's doing in his group. We serve a powerful, living, and active God who is doing incredible things all over the world. And I've become convinced that the gospel is location-proof, it's season-proof, it's it's time-proof. Uh, Wherever we are, whenever we are, the gospel is powerful and good to save. Coming to God, saying, I can't do it myself. I need you, Jesus. God always answers. He is faithful. He saves us. And sometimes... There are even places that we would look at and say, how can the gospel go forward there? How can God work there? How can God change eternal destinies there? And he does it, and it's amazing. And this morning, we are going to be talking about two men that God is gonna empower to come into one of the most difficult seasons in human history, one of the most challenging situations In the world at that time. And they are going to faithfully preach the gospel message. And God is going to work and move in people's lives. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I just want to remind you where we are in the book of Revelation. We've gone through chapter 10. We began this kind of pause, interlude type section where we kind of took a step back as the judgments were rolling out. We began to look at the scene and what is going on. And especially here in chapter 11, that interlude makes a lot of sense because we are going to be talking about something that is going on for half of the tribulation time while all of these judgments are rolling out, and it's incredible. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. John writes, "'Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, "'Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar.'" And those who worship in it, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouths and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony... The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. There's a lot of amazing stuff here and I I wanna make one uh, just uh, admission before we get going. Now some of you, you come regularly so you've seen Pastor Steve stand up here week after week after week and Pastor Steve has one thing that I think he tells us every every single week right he gets right to about two minutes left on that clock he's got 50 percent of his notes left to go and he looks out at all of you and he says folk I've got to hurry now I'm going to be honest with you he does it at the end I'm going to say it at the beginning There is way too much good stuff in here. I encourage you this week, read Revelation chapter 11, study it. There's a lot of amazing things happen. We don't have time to cover it all. We are going to be just kind of like a guided missile talking about the two witnesses and what's going on with them. But I encourage you to study this passage this week for yourself. So I want to start with the setting that these two witnesses find themselves in when they enter the scene. And we see that setting in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. It says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it's been given to the nations." And they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months So here, right off the bat We see both the location that these messengers are sent to As well as the state of that city at, the, at that time The location that these two messengers are sent to is Jerusalem And you may say, okay, how do you come to that from this passage? Well, look at what John is told to do He's told to get up and to measure the temple of God and the altar And those who worship in it Now, the temple of God has been built up and torn down and built up and refurbished and built up and torn down a number of times throughout the history of humanity. In fact, when John was writing this letter, the temple was sitting in ruins at the hand of the Romans. But the temple has a distinct and definitive location. It's Jerusalem. Now, currently, the temple has not been rebuilt, but we know that sometime, either near the beginning of the tribulation or right before the tribulation, that there will be a rebuilt temple and that sacrifices will be resumed. Daniel talks about this in Daniel chapter 9. He says, And he, being the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. The idea here is that grain offerings and sacrifices will have resumed in the temple. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 of the Antichrist that he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Displaying himself as being God. So the temple will be rebuilt, and it will be in Jerusalem. If you need more confirmation, in verse 8, John gives us that additional confirmation. He says of the two witnesses that their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Where also their Lord was crucified tells us definitively where this is going to be taking place. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. And you may think, well, I bet things are going good in Jerusalem, but you would be wrong. Man, oh man, things are not going well in Jerusalem at this time. Jerusalem is going to be tread underfoot by the Gentiles. Now, there's some debate when we come to this passage about where exactly Revelation 11, chapter 11 takes place during the tribulation. There's not a lot of debate about how long it's going to be. It talks about 42 months. That's three and a half years. It says that the witnesses are going to have authority for 1260 days, three and a half years. So there's not a lot of debate about how long they're going to be active. It's three and a half years. But there is debate about whether or not they're going to be active during the first half of the tribulation or the second half. And to me, looking at our passage, it seems like it would fit better in the second half of the tribulation. Take a look at John and his measurements again. Now it's interesting because John is told to take measurements, but he gives no measurements. And the reason for that is because the idea here is more about God saying, I have ownership over this than it is about taking down physical measurements. God is saying, I own the temple. That's referring to the holy place and the holy of holies. I own the altar, probably the bronze altar in the inner court. But then notice what he says about The court in verse 2. He says, leave out the court, and that there is the outer court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So he says, these things are mine, but these other things I have given to the nations. That lines up really well with our passage in Daniel chapter 9. It says there that the Antichrist will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's the seven year tribulation period. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So, for that first half of the tribulation period, people in Israel will be able to go and make sacrifices and grain offerings in the temple. They'll be able to do it freely, no problem. But in the middle of the tribulation point, the Antichrist is going to come in and say, nah, we're done with this. I'm putting a stop to it. And from that point on, there's going to be great oppression of the Jewish people in Israel and around the world. So it makes more sense then That when the city is being tread underfoot By the Gentiles That that would happen In the second half of the tribulation After the grain offerings and the sacrifices Have been stopped Why have they been stopped? Because the Antichrist put a stop to them And now the city has been overrun By the ungodly It makes sense then That Jerusalem would be called A spiritual Sodom in Egypt The picture of Sodom there Is moral depravity Egypt, oppression, and slavery. It is going to be a difficult, dark, wicked place during the tribu- this set part of the tribulation. Ironically, it's this very city of God, the holy city of God, Jerusalem, that is now being spiritually compared to those who, historically, if you think about Sodom and Egypt, to those who hate God and hate his word. So that's the backdrop to our two witnesses entering the scene. They enter Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that has been seemingly overrun by the world and by worldliness, a temple that has been desecrated by the Antichrist. And it's in this context that they begin to preach the message that God has given them. Take a look at verse three. We're given a description of these two witnesses. John writes... It is said, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. And these have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague so often as they desire. Now, there's been a lot of debate and speculation over the the years about who specifically are these two individuals. And we're going to get into that. But before we do, I just want to take a look at some of the things that we do know very clearly about these guys from the text. And the first thing is that these two witnesses are spirit-fueled and spirit-filled men of God. Look at verse 4. It says that these are two olive trees and two lampstands. Now, you may be like me. And you read that and you kind of went, that's weird. Interesting choice of words there, John. Interesting, right? But this is actually a reference to Zechariah chapter 4 and to the two men that are found in that passage both Joshua, who was a high priest, and Zerubbabel, a civil leader. These two men would lead Israel back to worshiping God following their captivity, and they carried the light of revival through the power of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah, when he was talking to an angel about this, went to the angel and the same depiction was given to him, that these two men are lampstands and that they are olive trees. And he said, okay, well, what exactly does that mean? The angel answered him in Zechariah 4, 6 and said, this is the word of the Lord of Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Just as Joshua and Zerubbabel were powered by the Spirit of God, so shall these two witnesses stand against great oppression by the power of the Spirit as they proclaim God's message to Jerusalem and to the world. These two men are going to enter into a dark and wicked place. There is going to be great oppression that is going to come against them, and yet they are going to be able to carry on against everything that they face because they are Spirit-filled and Spirit-filled men of God. They're gonna do some amazing things and some amazing signs and wonders are gonna come forth from them. Let's just take a look at some of the things that are listed here in the passage that these guys are gonna do. They're gonna be able to call forth fire. Just like Elijah called it down from the sky, they will call it out from their mouths. They'll be able to stop rain. It says that during this period of time, they'll be able to stop rain. It's eerily similar to the amount of time that Elijah himself stopped rain. Like Moses, they're going to be able to turn water to blood. And like Moses, they're going to be able to strike the earth with plagues. John MacArthur wrote that miracles were often used by God in the New and Old Testament to authenticate his messengers. And that's going to be the case here. They're going to come down with a message from God. They are going to proclaim to people about their their wickedness. They're going to call them to turn to Jesus. And in the midst of all that, they're going to be doing these incredible signs and wonders. And you would think that that would cause people's hearts to turn. That's not the case said people are going to be upset, they're going to be angry. And that's why I think it's important to also point out about these two, that during this period of time that God has ordained for them to work, they will be seemingly invulnerable. They cannot be silenced until their work is complete. Think about some of the things that they're going to be doing. You can understand maybe where some of the anger of the world is going to be coming from. They're living in a world that's faced all of this catastrophe already. All of these things have already happened. The world is is kind of in chaos. It's in ruins. And now here comes some guys who in the midst of speaking truth to them are also going to be able to shut off the rain. The little water that is left as people are trying to figure out what they're gonna do, they're able to turn it to blood. So it's not totally surprising that People are going to want to come after these guys. But when they do, Revelation 11 tells us that if anyone wants to harm them, fire will flow out of their mouths and devour their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Until God's protection stops, these men will be invulnerable. Now, there's been a lot of suggestions about who these two might be throughout the history of the church. Some would say that they're, they're not so much distinct individuals as they're a picture of the church and of Israel during this time. Others would argue that, well, maybe it's not Israel and the church, but they are representative of larger groups of people. Uh, I would just to kind of, as you're thinking through and processing your view on this, I would just encourage you. The text seems to be very clear that these are two distinct individuals, so I would maybe shy away from those interpretations myself because I don't think that's what the text is telling us. I think that it's very distinctly referring to two people. In fact, when you think about Revelation 11:8, 8, the dead bodies of these witnesses are going to be lying in the street. That would be very difficult for that to be uh, Israel and the church lying in the street. It seems more obvious that it would be two actual distinct individuals. Now, the early church often held that these two men were Enoch and Elijah. There's kind of an interesting reason why they thought about it that way. Uh, They took Hebrews chapter nine, and they said, okay, Hebrews nine talks about the fact that it is appointed for men only to die once. So let's go find the two guys that never died, and maybe they're the two witnesses. So they went to Enoch and Elijah. that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I was kind of, okay, that's cool but then I started thinking about it a little more and there's a few issues that kinda of come up with this namely the fact that that a whole idea that it's appointed for man to die once to me doesn't seem like a hard and fast rule just kinda of more of a general truth about things. Think about the people who are gonna be raptured. They're not all gonna die. They're gonna be raptured. The people who live through the tribulation they're gonna go into the millennial kingdom and reign with Christ. They're not gonna die think about people like Lazarus he died once and at least you know I haven't seen him around recently but I'm pretty sure he died twice so maybe better to be careful about taking that as a hard and fast parameter a lot of people also assume that these two men could be Elijah and Moses there's a lot of interesting support for that if I had to pick one that's what I'd probably go with Uh, Elijah didn't die, and there's mystery surrounding where Moses is buried, so maybe there's something in that. Many of the signs and wonders that these two witnesses are going to do parallel the work that Elijah and Moses did. Uh, Malachi actually talks about Elijah's future work. In Malachi chapter 4, he says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Both Moses and Elijah were present at the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew chapter 17. So it's, it's interesting. Maybe that these are the two guys that it's going to be. But I'd also give some cautions here to that view as well. Uh, first of all, Jesus said Malachi's words regarding Elijah were partially fulfilled by John the Baptist. Uh, also, there are places where Elijah and Moses' signs and wonders line up with these two witnesses. There's other ways in which they don't quite. Right? Elijah called fire down from heaven. These two are going to speak it out of their mouths. Moses was able to do plagues when God said, hey, you're going to go and you're going to do this sign of wonder, or you're going to call this plague down. When I tell you, you do it. These two are going to be able to at will call plagues upon the earth. Personally, when it comes to the transfiguration, that to me is, is interesting. But John was at the Transfiguration. So there's part of me that's just kind of like, well, if John was there and he saw those guys and now he's seeing the two witnesses, like why is he not making that connection? You know, maybe to put it even more bluntly, John, if you know who these people are, why not just say it? Why choose to leave them in obscurity? The conclusion here is that we don't know for certain who these guys are because Scripture doesn't tell us. So we can talk about it, we can have thoughts on it, we can make decisions, but we got to be careful about being dogmatic about it. I like the idea though that these are just two nameless obscure super prophets. Who are coming into a very difficult situation. They're doing incredible signs and wonders. They're pointing people to Jesus. They're they're doing the work of ministry in a very difficult time. But they're not taking any of the credit. Because frankly, God's the one that should get all the credit anyway. Let's look at their purpose. These two witnesses come down, they have a distinct purpose. First thing is that their purpose is to witness. This is the Greek word uh, that we get our English word martyr from. They will come as emissaries to deliver God's message to an unbelieving world and to bear witness to the world's need for Jesus. They'll do that through prophesying. And we think about prophesying often, with the, what comes to mind for us is future telling. But that phrase, prophesying, actually is more in line with speaking inspired truth. And it might be about the future, but it also might just be for the present. These witnesses will call out the wickedness of the world, they'll point out that the time to repent is short, they'll implore people to turn to Jesus. They'll confirm their messages with signs and wonders. And again, you would think that as all these things are going on and people are hearing this and then they're seeing the signs, they would be cut to the quick and say, I need Jesus. I've got to repent. My wickedness is too much. But the truth is, it's not going to cause people to repent. It's going to cause people's hearts to be hard. They're going to look at these people and instead of saying, yeah, their message is true, they're going to look at them and say, they're tormenting us. These guys are the problem." It makes sense, then, that the witness's message will be brought clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth was a rough, heavy, coarse cloth worn in ancient times as a symbol of mourning, distress, grief, and humility. Reminds me of the iconic image of the guy standing on the street corner holding up the sign that says, The end is nigh. Repent. The time is short. Judgment is coming. Change. Turn to Jesus. Come to him. Now is the time. The time is short. But instead of listening, people will resent these prophets of doom. Despite the power and the sadness with which these witnesses will bring the message, the world will ultimately reject them. And when their duty is complete, God will allow the beast to take their lives. Look at verse 7. See the death of the two witnesses. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their bodies to be laid in the tomb. And those who dwell on the Earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the Earth. I want to highlight a few things here. First, I love that phrase when they have finished their testimony, just to make sure we get this, until God allows it, nobody. Not Satan, not the beast. Not those wicked people who dwell on the earth. Nobody can touch these guys. But when God allows for it, it's the beast that's going to kill them. Now, this is our first mention of the beast. We're going to get more into him in chapter 13 and 17. But this is the Antichrist, fueled by satanic power. It's that idea up from the abyss. He will come and kill the two witnesses. Now, i got to be honest with you. The part that I find most shocking about this is the world's reaction It's just hard for me to to kind of put into perspective and like process how it is that a world could be so dark and so wicked that these guys who are coming and proclaiming truth when they're killed, that they're gonna celebrate, that they're gonna throw a party, that they're gonna go even beyond that to take the bodies and to not bury them and to put them in the street and to lay them out so that the world can look at them and rejoice that they're dead. That's gross. It's disgusting. It's shocking. I remember the first time I went on Twitter. It was still called Twitter back then. When a political figure had passed away and I went on Twitter and There was a lot of discourse about it. And instead of being respectful to the dead, you know, that's kind of what I had been used to. It's like everybody kind of be divisive about their politics, and all of a sudden somebody dies, and then they're very respectful. And I remember the first time I went on Twitter and I saw people gloating that somebody else had died. Oh, it's great that this guy's gone. Now I don't have to listen to his bogus stuff anymore, and blah, blah, blah. I I was shocked. This is going to be worse. And I was thinking about, and I don't know, this is speculation on my part, but I was thinking about why are they wanting to lay these bodies out for three and a half days? I mean, first of all, I think it's obvious that this is a great indignity to those guys. I think that's part of the reason why. But I think part of the reason why is in our current society, people like to put things on their 24-hour, their 72-hour news media cycle, and they just like to see what's going on. I think that these bodies are going to be broadcast all over the world. I think they're going to be on every news channel. I think that the, I think YouTubers and Twitch streamers and people are just going to have this live video running. And I think the world is going to watch and rejoice and celebrate as person after person comes up to these bodies and they're kicking them and they're spitting on them, making fun of them. It's going to be a grisly scene. But it's also going to be the scene For the world at least Of one of the most terrifying sights in history Because scripture tells us That after three and a half days God is going to resurrect these guys And they're going to stand up in the middle Of everything that's going on And terrify the world Look at verse 11 It says But after the three and a half days The breath of life from God came into them And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. I love that phrase, breath of life from God. God is going to breathe into these men. falling out of their chairs, there it is, I'm back, falling out of their chairs because, oh, I'm so shocked, I can't believe they announced this video game or this crazy thing. you would think that this moment would be an incredible time for these guys to stand up and say see I told you so but that's not what they're going to do they're going to stand up they're going to look up they're going to hear the voice say come up here and gradually they're going to begin to ascend it's not going to happen in the blink of an eye it's going to be like Jesus himself as he ascended. They're going to go up slowly. You can imagine the terror on people's faces as they're screaming and losing their minds. What's happening? How is this going on? Oh, ah! Then in the midst of that, an earthquake's going to happen. Oh yeah, just an earthquake. A tenth of the city is going to be destroyed. 7,000 people are going to be killed. And great terror is going to come upon everybody else. And they're going to give glory to God. A few months ago, I was talking about the fifth and sixth seals. We saw an earthquake there in that passage. And it was a completely different response. The response there was to say, you know what? I'd rather the mountain fall on me than have to turn and face a living God. Here we see a different response. We see God using all of this that's going on to bring people to himself. We're seeing people turn and give glory to God. And as I was reading this passage this week, I just kind of couldn't come away from this idea. Because when I think of revelation, I'm just being honest with you, I think of judgment I think of pain I think of suffering I think of God's righteous judgment Being carried out carried out on the earth What I don't think about Is that even here In the tribulation The great tribulation Is that the God of the universe Is going to send a lifeboat So that if anybody would respond To the message and the hope of the gospel That they could go to heaven And be in eternity with him But that's what's going to happen these two witnesses are gonna come and yes, they're gonna speak truth and they're gonna call out the wickedness of the world but they're also gonna point people to Jesus and even here at the end, God does not want any to perish. If they would only turn to Jesus, he will save them. And as I was processing that truth in my own heart, in my own life, I just kind of came back. There's so many applications we could take from this passage but I'm just gonna go with one. Okay, listen up, church. You and I, at least as far as I know, we are not called to spit fire out of our mouths. You and I, as far as I know, we're not called to call plagues down on the earth. But each one of us that's here today are called to be a witness. Each one of us that's here today are called to share the gospel, to share the hope that was, is within us, We're called to share the truth that Jesus Christ alone saves to a broken and dying and hurting world. And it may not be Jerusalem in those days, but the people that are here today need to hear that message just as much as those will. And so church, can I ask you, are you sharing the hope that is within you? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you being a witness? I get it, I know some of you are out there, I'm scared, I'm afraid, I I don't know what to say, what am I gonna say? Okay, I'm an introvert, I get where you're coming from, but my introvertedness is not an excuse to not share the gospel. It is an opportunity for God to be shown in me as he overcomes my introvertedness. We are called to be witnesses to the world. In the great tribulation, God will call two witnesses to come and proclaim truth to the world and to bring him glory through their lives, through their deaths, and through their resurrections. Church, let us have that same desire to live for Jesus. Let us have that same desire to proclaim his name and to bring God glory with all that we do until we see him face to face. Let's pray.